I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. And um, historians have two major taboos. Uh, you can't really be part of the discipline. One is you must never, ever have a theory of history. Um, the last time that was uh, approached in a big way, we had uh, Marx and the Communist Manifesto and a lot of people killed. And so theories of history that are wrong are, are lethal. And many historians just decided uh, it's way too complex, it's way too dangerous, and uh, we don't do theories of history. So forget about it, you grad students. The other thing historians are forbidden to do is talk about the future um, because history and the historian's discipline is based on facts and the problem of the future is it doesn't have any facts yet. Therefore, to hold forth about the history of the future is obviously just so much smoke. Our speaker tonight, uh, perhaps because he works as an archaeologist, and archaeologists are very gritty in what they do. And they have a lot of fun in what they do. And that grit and that fun and that long perspective is what Ian Morris brings. Please welcome him. Well, thank you very much. Um, uh, it's great to be here this evening. I'd like to thank uh, Stuart for inviting me to come and speak to you and, and Danielle for organizing me so that I actually got here in time uh, to give the talk. And it's great to see so many of you here tonight. Uh, the last time I did a big lecture thing in the U.S. is a couple of months ago, I flew to Chicago. And I flew in the day after they'd had like the third biggest snowstorm on record. They'd had like three feet of snow dumped on the city. And um, by the time I landed there, they'd plowed every street in the city. The plane landed dead on time, and there were no delays anywhere at all. So when I woke up this morning and saw that it was raining outside, I thought, you know, clearly there's nothing to worry about. Everything's going to be fine. And people tell me it did, did rain up here as well. I live down in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and it, it always rains down there. Um, but so, yes, I'm glad everybody was uh, able to come along here this, uh, this evening to, to hear the talk. Um, my effect on the weather is actually the least, uh, or barely the beginning of my superpowers when it comes to giving talks. Um, a year or so ago, I, I had... A, Wonderful invitation to go out to Athens and give a talk. And while I was in Athens, the government there confessed they'd been cooking the books for the previous five years. The country was broke, and they were going to need an enormous bailout from the European Union. Shortly before that, I'd been in Dubai, when Dubai World announced it couldn't pay any of its bills. And so I've decided I'm actually going to retire from the professor business and start just betting against the currencies of every country I go to. And everything will be fine. But so far, this has not yet panned out. I haven't become wealthy yet. So um, I'm actually here this evening, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what I do. And um, I'm going to talk um, particularly about some ideas I developed while I was writing a book recently, which came out um, last autumn, called Why the West Rules for Now patterns of history, and what they reveal about the future. Now, um, like Stuart was just saying, by background, I'm a historian. The, the sort of people who normally write books like this tend to be political pundits of various kinds. I'm not really one of those people. I'm a, I'm a historian. Or I'm, at least I'm a part-time historian. 
Um, the rest of my time, I spend being an archaeologist. And uh, I'm a big fan of one of the sayings of another um, somewhat more famous part-time historian, Winston Churchill, who, uh, as many of you all know, wrote a wonderful life of Marlborough, who had been one of his relatives, many, many historical books. Um, that one of Churchill's favorite sayings was, the farther backward you can look, the farther forward you're likely to see. And I've always thought this was absolutely right. This is something historians should be doing. Now, Winston Churchill, as I say, part-time historian, when he wasn't being a historian, his day job was saving civilization. My day job when I'm not being a historian is being an archaeologist, which is different from, and I like to think, superior to saving the world. Um, what it allows you to do, if you're an archaeologist, it allows you to see a lot further back than most historians do. And I think that's very important for grasping what the larger shape of history has been and um, where it's likely to go next. So, in this book that I wrote, I asked the question, can we identify the historical forces that have shaped Western domination of the world? And if we can, can we then project these um, forces forward and see where things are likely to go next? And I think the answer to both these questions is yes. So, okay, having said that, there are lots and lots of theories out there, as I'm sure you're aware. Lots of theories about why the West ruled, why the West came to dominate the planet. Uh, I think these theories can be basically broken down into two broad camps, um, what I like to call the long-term lock-in theories and the short-term accident theories. So I just want to say a couple of words quickly about um, what these theories look like. And there's lots and lots of different versions of each kind of theory. But um, within the first bundle, the long-term lock-in theories, the most popular is a kind of classical theory. And then what I mean by that is it's an idea that goes back to the 18th century, when Europeans first start to dream up this idea. And um, it's a classical theory because it goes back to ancient Greece. And the idea is that back in ancient Greece, two and a half thousand years ago, the Greeks come up with a unique civilization. There's nothing else like it anywhere else in the world. The Greeks then pass this civilization on, and it's, it's picked up by the Romans, and the Romans spread it around over a much larger area. Eventually, this civilization gets passed down to the pinnacle of Western civilization. And here, you see the pinnacle of Western civilization. This is the town I was born in. I found this photo in a book. It was the town I was born in, taken in the month I was born. And I'm pretty sure it's a little bit hard to figure out through the smog what exactly you're looking at here, apart from urban blight, obviously. But I'm pretty sure, um, if it's my point, yeah, my point is working. I was born, perhaps as this picture was being taken, just about half a mile or so off in this direction to the left. Pinnacle of civilization. But of course, I jest. Here is the proper pinnacle of civilization. <laughs> So th th this theory then, it runs, ancient Greeks invent a unique civilization, passed down um, to the modern West. This civilization makes the West different from and superior to all other civilizations in the world. The, um, the implication is Western domination of the world was locked in in the distant past, hence the name long-term lock-in theories. And also, I think there's a kind of an implication with this that because it's all locked in in the distant past, it might be a permanent state. This was the way the world was fated to be. Now, the second big clump of theories, the short-term accident theories, these guys look at the long-term lock-in theories and they just say, pfft, Nonsense. All of that is nonsense. Everything I just said is ridiculous. 
If you look at ancient Greece and Rome, they say, ancient Greek and Roman civilizations, really not that different from the ancient Mauryan Empire in India or Han Dynasty China or the, the Maya in Mesoamerica, all pre-modern agrarian civilizations are basically the same thing, the short-term accident theorists will say. They say the West only really pulled ahead of the rest very recently, hence short-term theories. And the reason they did so was largely accidental. And the, the short-term accident theorists disagree among themselves over what exactly the accident was. But they all agree something kind of accidental happened, set off the industrial revolution in the West. My hometown once again. My hometown, you will be pleased to learn. The first town in the world to have a clean air act. And uh, you can probably see why. So, okay, the short-term accident theories then say Western domination is just dumb luck. Something happened quite recently, tipped the West into an industrial revolution, um, and the rest is history. Well, okay, there are heated arguments between the proponents of these theories, because both of them, as I'm sure you can see very easily, both of these are theories that can become very politicized very, very quickly. Heated arguments have been going on for a long time now. Uh, the thing with these arguments, um, they remind me very much of the famous South Asian story about the five blind men and the elephant, uh, which I'm sure many of you know already. The, the story is for, that for reasons which are left obscure in this story, there are five blind guys who encounter an elephant, and they're trying to figure out what it is. And one grabs the tusk and says, oh, this is a spear. And somebody else grabs the tail and says, it's a rope. And somebody else grabs a leg and says it's a tree trunk. And they, they all grab different bits of elephant anatomy. And we probably should not pursue the story too far, really. But they all grab different bits of the anatomy and say it's something different. And the, the moral, of course, is that you, if you're going to debate about what something is, you must all be talking about the same thing. Otherwise, the whole discussion will become pointless very quickly. And this, I think, has been the case with these debates about um, explaining Western domination of the world. People have been talking about different things, using um, the same terminology to mean different things, or different terminology to talk about the same thing, different methods, really very much talking past each other. So, um, when I started getting interested in this question, it seemed to me that the first thing to do was to figure out what the arguments are really about when people are having these big disputes. And it, uh, it seemed to me that the, the, the core thing here in these debates was what in my book I came to call social development. This is what the argument was about, social development. And by social development, I basically mean society's abilities to get things done. Now, um, one of my pet hates, I have a lot of pet hates, but one of them is people who read PowerPoint slides out. But <laughs> I am now about to do this, you know, basically because I can. I've got the projector and this fancy little microphone here. So I'm going to read the PowerPoint thing out to you. Because I need, obviously I need to say a little bit more than just society's ability to get things done of what I mean by social development. So the way I define this is um, a bundle of technological subsistence, organizational and cultural accomplishments through which people feed, clothe, house and reproduce themselves, explain the world around them, resolve disputes within their communities, extend their power at the expense of other communities, um, and defend themselves against others' attempts to extend their power. So that's basically what I mean. Um, really what it is, is a group's ability to master its physical and intellectual environment. And in principle, at least, I think this is something that we ought to be able to measure and then compare across time and space. Now, I also think the long-term lock-in theories, it seems to me, 
those are basically saying that Western social development has been ahead of development in the rest of the world for a very long time, perhaps since ancient Greek times. Short-term accidents say, no, it hasn't. It, it, it's, it's just not like that at all. And these, I think, are basically quantitative claims about how much social development do different parts of the world have at different points in time. And that, I think, is a solution to the elephant problem. If we can agree that this is what we're talking about, then we ought to be able to measure it and argue about it a bit more precisely. Now, I'm not trying to claim that um, numerical comparisons of social development are more objective than other ways of looking at this problem. Having spent a long time um, working on this, I am acutely aware of all the assumptions and guesses and hunches that go into doing this. So I, I don't think that measuring social development makes you more objective. But it does make you more explicit. It forces you to say, I'm going to look at this and this and this and not that and that and that. And I'm going to measure them in these ways. And these are the numbers I come up with. And this is why I came up with these numbers. And if someone then disagrees with you, they can attack you on the basis of what you've actually done rather than um, starting from a totally different set of premises. So this seemed to me like a good thing to do. So I spent a long time calculating social development scores for different parts of the world across the 15,000 years since the end of the last major ice age, asking myself basically one question over and over again. Do long-term lock-in theories or short-term accident theories correspond better to reality? Now, I could bore you rigid with an account of my social development index. And I say this with confidence because I've done it several times now to audiences. It, it really knocks them just dead in their seats. But I won't do that uh, because um, up on the uh, screen there is a, a URL where if you are the kind of obsessive person I am, you can go there and download an entire book that is about nothing except my social development index. Uh, and I strongly recommend that. Uh, no one I've met, even my bitterest enemies, have, no one has yet admitted to reading the whole thing the whole way through. So this is a good sign, I think. So, but I'll just say one very quick thing about the index before moving on to uh, talk about results. Um, when I, I was trying to figure out you know, how do you do this, this thing, um, uh, the ability of societies to master their physical and intellectual environment, how do you actually measure that? And I ended up taking inspiration from something the United Nations did about 20 years ago. Um, they dreamed up what they call the Human Development Index. And the idea with that is they've got, you know, all these organizations are looking for ways to invest, um, to, to raise welfare in different parts of the world. So some of the economists said, what we need is a simple index that will help you with your investment decisions. So they decided what we want is a way to measure human development by which they meant the ability of governments to create conditions which allow their citizens to realize their human potential. And so they said, we want some way to measure this. Um, we could try to just you know, measure everything, because everything is relevant here. But we don't want to do that because it, it's stupid and pointless. What we want is the smallest possible number of traits which roughly cover what we mean by human development and which can be measured. And they came up with three traits, and they looked, if I can get them straight, they, they looked at life expectancy at birth, um, real wages, and levels of education in different countries, and calculated this score. Now, that seemed to me to be a really good way to do this. Um, social development that I'm looking at is a bit different, so I, I use different traits to look at. And what I did was come up with four traits, which were per capita energy capture, um, levels of organization within the society, by, uh, for which I used a proxy measure. I just looked at the size of the largest settlement within a society. 
um, the forms of information technology, and then last but sadly not least, um, war-making capacity, which you know, has to be part of an index like this. So that, that's what I did. That was my um, idea for doing this index. And, uh, okay, yeah, so well, moving along. I mean, that is enough preamble about my index. You might think that is too much preamble. Now it's time to look at the results. So big drum roll. We now have a graph which shows you the shape of human history. And there it is. <laughs> yeah, now I, you know, I, I don't understand. Why do people always laugh at my graph? This, this wounds me. But, yes, I mean, I do actually sort of see the humor in my graph. After all this time working on it, this is what I come up with. And it's sort of, oh, Oh, that's it. So, yeah, the obvious thing here is you, you look at this graph, and unless your eyesight is way better than mine, which it, it may well be at this stage in my life, it's sort of hard to see very much going on here. So initially, I was a bit disappointed with my graph. But I think there are actually several interesting things going on here, quite important things, I would say. Uh, oh, first thing I should say about my graph. I've just got two lines on the graph out of all the different regions in the world I looked at. This graph just shows you a western region and an eastern region. And what I mean by those and why there's only two of them, I'll come back to that in just a second. But um, the first thing you see, I think, when you look at this graph, first thing that struck me was how similar the lines are which I think if you're a long-term lock-in theorist, that's kind of bad news that the lines are so similar. Second thing you see, the lines, here's my pointer again, the lines kind of putter along the bottom of the graph, putter, 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 not much is going on. About 2000 BC, they sort of drag themselves off the bottom, it wobbles around a little bit, but still, you know, really not a lot is going on here. And then you get to about the year 1800, they take a 90-degree turn to the left and shoot off the top of the page, or almost. Now, this, again, this sounds like good news for the short-term accident theorists, to say that basically nothing really happens, then a couple of hundred years ago, everything happens. So, two observations about that graph. The problem, though, I think, is that the second of my observations largely explains the first. And what I mean by that, in order to get the score, the, where's the pointer gone? Here it is. The, the Western score for the year 2000, 906 points up here. In order to get that score on this graph, because I've got to have the graph go up to 1,000, which means squishing down all of the earlier scores down into a very, very small area. Now, oh, I should have said that here we've got the dates from 14,000 BC up to the year 2000. I stopped in 2000, which is a ni nice round number. Um, here, the social development score from zero, which is actually not possible to score. Zero would mean we were capturing no energy from the environment, which would mean we'd all be dead. So zero, you can't actually do zero. But up to 1,000, which is the biggest number of points you could theoretically score for the year 2000. In order to go up to 1,000 on this graph, you've got to squish everything else down. So the next picture I'm going to show you is this, exactly the same data, but leaving off the really high scores for the year 2000. So the next graph just goes up to the year 1900. Now, when we look at this graph, clearly this is a rather different sort of graph. There's a lot more going on than we could see in the first graph. On the previous graph, go back to it for a second again, it looks like the eastern and western scores, the, the, the red and the blue scores, they're more or less the same until very recently. In this graph, we see that's actually not the case. The Western score has been higher than the Eastern for 90% of the time since the last ice age, which you might say, ah, long-term lock-in theory. This is now good news for the long-term guys. Second thing I think we see on this graph, that um, previous graph, it looks like the lines are basically flat almost all the time, drag up a little bit, and then there's this huge change in, in recent times. 
this graph we see that's actually not the case. The scores have been rising generally since the end of the Ice Age, slowly and then accelerating certainly, but the scores have been rising almost all the time. Next thing we see, though, scores don't rise consistently. They rise, there's periods of fast rising, there's periods of stagnation, there's periods of collapse and decline in the social development scores. This is something we just couldn't see on the previous graph. Last thing I would say we see on this graph, the Western score, the blue line, is not ahead all of the time. It's ahead 90% of the time, but not all the time. There's a 1,200-year period, roughly the year 550 around here to the year 1750 over here, where the Eastern score is higher than the Western. That's very bad news for the long-term lock-in theory, because that really shouldn't happen if things were locked in a very long time ago. Now, I think to explain all the, the six observations I just made about the two graphs, to explain all of those, uh, you, you have to explain all of those, I think, if you're going to answer the question about why the West rules. You can't get away with just explaining one or two of them. And I think, in fact, this calls, um, for, like Stuart mentioned, for some kind of general theory of history that can take all of the, the, the teeming details of the real history and reduce them to a few underlying principles. So, so that's what I kind of tried to develop in my book. And I came to the conclusion that we need three intellectual tools to understand, to explain why the West rules for now. The first of these tools, I think, is biology. Biology ought to be fundamental to everything humans do. Because it, when it's not, and often it isn't, when it's not, it means we don't understand what we are. Biology tells us what we are. We are animals. It tells us that people are all pretty much the same. Wherever you find them all over the world, throughout their history, humans have all been pretty much the same. And the thing that we are, the, the same thing that we all are all around the world, is clever chimpanzees. We do more or less what chimpanzees do, but we do it better. We have the um, 2.7 pounds of magic uh, up in the top of our heads, these brains that are so far beyond the brain, so far as we know, of any other living thing. We can do what chimpanzees do, but we do it better. So chimpanzees are able to um, munch down on their bananas, catch the odd monkey and smash its brain out and eat it. Whereas human beings, um, my students at Stanford just come back from spring break. On spring break, they can go to the Caribbean and drink beer on the beach until they pass out, which I'm certain chimpanzees would do if they could, but they can't. So this is what we are. The first thing we need to know is about biology, which tells us what we are. Second thing we need to know is about sociology, by which I, that's a sort of shorthand expression for the social sciences writ large. Um, Biology tells us about how individual human animals behave, what they get up to. The sociology tells us about how societies as large groups behave, how societies deal with change, and what causes change in societies and what the changes cause in the societies. I think you've got to have both of these things. Once you put the two together, I think you've got a universalizing kind of biosocial theory about humanity. It applies to all people in all times and places. I think biology and sociology tell us why social development generally increases across time, why it sometimes stagnates and falls, but these two things don't tell us about East-West differences, why the Western score is higher than the Eastern, why, why it's been higher for, for so much of our history. And I think to explain that, we need the third tool. And the third tool is geography. 
It's geography, I suggest in my book, that tells us why groups of people, which are people are all pretty much the same, and why groups of these people are all the same, which are, and these groups kind of develop along similar lines because the societies are basically all pretty much the same. And yet the groups fare differently in different places. And this, I suggest, is because the places are different. The people are the same, the societies, the social groups are the same, but the places are different. Now, this is a very simple claim to make, but it has big consequences, big implications. It means that the Western domination of the world is not explained by great men or great women. It's not explained by culture. It's not explained by religion. It's not explained by politics. It's geography that explains why the West rules, and also ge geography that explains why Western rule is coming to an end. So, okay, I could actually stop right there. We could all be done. And the problem, of course, is uh, some obvious questions then arise. If things are really so simple, why is history so messy? And I'm sure you all studied history in high school, college. You, you know, history is messy. Why is it so messy? Also, if it's so simple, why haven't people figured this out before, if it's really that simple? And actually, people have figured this out before. I'm hardly the first person to suggest that geography is the big motor. But it's certainly not the way most historians see things. So why is history so messy? Why is this not a more popular theory? The answer to both of these questions, I think, is that geography itself is messy. That's why the results are messy, too. And I realized as I was writing my book that geography operates as a kind of a two-way street. On the one hand, geography determines how societies develop. But the way societies develop determines what geography means. And this is my, my basic shtick in this book. Um, now, to convince you that I'm right in this, obviously what we should do now is you should all leave and go outside and buy my book and take it home and read it very, very carefully. And then you will be absolutely convinced that I'm right about this. But since I've got you here right now, um, I will try to convince you of uh, the, the basic truth of these claims. But to do that, we now have to plunge into some actual history. I mean, it may have come to your attention. I've been doing all this talking so far. There's been precious little actual history in this. So what I now want to do is take us on a sort of whirlwind tour of the last 15,000 years of Eastern and Western history, trying to demonstrate the, the validity of the claim I'm making and, and what that might teach us, if it's true. So I want to go back 15,000 years, a long time to start off with, to the end of the last ice age. And the reason I'm going to stop at that point is that that is the point at which I think we first begin to see really distinctive ways of life appearing in different parts of the world. What happens at the end of the Ice Age as the war world warms up? There's half a dozen places around the world. There's actually there's a little bit of debate among archaeologists over precisely what the places are. But these places command a reasonable amount of agreement. There's half a dozen places where, <clears throat> where very new kinds of societies start to emerge at the end of the Ice Age. What's new about these societies is that in these places, not really anywhere else, in these places, humans begin to domesticate plants and animals. This supports much larger populations, and the humans begin to develop much more complicated societies to live in. Now, why these places? Why then? Well, this is something that I think has become increasingly clear across the last 20 years. And um, Jared Diamond's book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, that I'm sure many of you will have encountered, I think is far and away the clearest and best explanation of why these places. 
And Diamond explains really lucidly that geography is the reason domestication begins in these places. You'll notice on this map, they're all along a roughly similar band of latitudes. These are the only places in the, wo in the world where topography and climate conspire to allow the evolution of the kinds of large plants and heavy grains, um, so heavy grain grants and large mammals that can be domesticated and bent to the human will to produce more food for the humans. These are the places where it can happen, and within these places, the place in the world where um, it happens fastest and most easiest is here, the, the area archaeologists like to call the hilly flanks. This is where geography conspires to produce the densest concentrations of domesticable plants and animals. That's why it happens there first, because it's easiest. There are most of these things. It starts there certainly by the year 9,500 BCE. Across the next 2,000 years, the other places you see on this map um, start to have their own domestication processes. After that date, um, other places join in the process as well. Now, what this means is the part of the world that starts producing complex societies with rising social development first is this hilly flanks area here. And in, in my book, what I did was um, what I think is a sort of common sense thing to do is to say that I'm going to refer to Western societies as the ones that trace their roots in complex societies back to the westernmost core area within Eurasia, in the hilly flanks. Modern Western societies, in one way or another, we can say have all sort of developed out of this core area here and spread out from there through migration and diffusion across the intervening 11,000 plus years. Um, at the other end of Eurasia, we have another core area, and I describe the societies, the complex societies that developed out of that as the eastern societies, the ones that developed out of the yellow Yangtze Valleys area. I ended up in my book doing uh, a comparison of really just these two, um, these two traditions, this western and eastern tradition. Um, largely to keep the book within a manageable length. I wanted originally to look at everything, but that was going to the book would be this fat. My publisher got very upset with me. And so I trimmed it down to just these two places because the parts of the world that have had the highest social development scores since the end of the Ice Age have always been societies that have descended from one of these two cores. So we can kind of simplify the problem by just doing this two-way comparison, which I think gives us enough information to, to answer the questions. So anyway, whether that's true or not, um, everywhere you get domestication, population grows, it expands geographically um, through migration and through people emulating what's going on in the areas of domestication. As it expands, as the societies become more complex, rising social development changes the meanings of geography. Geography drove where the process starts, the process then takes over, starts changing what geography means. What I mean by that, um, if we look just at this hilly flanks area again, farming spreads out relatively quickly across Europe. Within 4,000 years, it's gone all the way to the Atlantic. It's gone off up into Central Asia, but it moves extremely slowly. Oh, come back. Here we are. moves extremely slowly, the short distance down here, into what we now call Iraq. Now, the reason for that is geographical. Um, if you live in Iraq in ancient times and you try to do what the farmers up in the hilly flanks do, which is take a handful of wheat or barley, plant it in the ground and stand there with your arms out waiting for the rain to fall, you will wait a very long time. The rain is not going to fall. Um, you can't farm that way in Iraq. It just isn't going to work. Our, Iraq is a very marginal, backward kind of place in the early farming system. What changes that around is that 
um, as social development increases and you get more and more complex societies, people figure out a new way to do farming. Instead of waiting, waiting for the rains to fall, they wait for the great Euphrates and Tigris rivers to flood. They figure out that if we um, combine the flooding of the rivers with this brilliant technological breakthrough, the big ditch, this is the technical word for what you see here, the big ditch. If you dig a big ditch, you can catch, as the rivers flood, you can drain the water off into a big storage pit. And then when you need to water your crops to, to fertilize and get them growing, you can take the water from the big pit, another technical term and put it in your field and everything will grow great. Now that sounds very simple. It's actually there's a lot of um, technicalities to it. It takes thousands of years for people to really crack the system of irrigation um, farming. Once they do though, it abruptly changes the meaning of geography. Ancient Iraq goes from being this backwater where farming is almost impossible to pull off, to suddenly being a place where if you're doing this kind of stuff, you now generate agricultural yields much, much higher than the hilly flanks could do. So very quickly, after about 5000 BC, um, ancient Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt begin to overtake the hilly flanks as the core of the western area. Their bad geography has become good geography. As they do that, other things happen. The new meaning of geography pushes up social development further. The villages get bigger and bigger. The villages start to turn into actual cities. As that happens, the city dwellers discover, oh, there's this whole new advantage to the rivers. Not only can we irrigate our crops, we can also trade along the rivers, which is much cheaper than moving goods by land. We can move taxes and armies up and down the rivers. The rivers become indispensable for the cities. As the cities get bigger, driven by this use of the rivers, as the cities get bigger, new changes start to set in. As the cities turn into real empires, people realize, oh, rivers are great, but entire seas, those are even better. The Mediterranean Sea goes from being a kind of backward fringe, a boundary to the ancient world, into being a kind of superhighway connecting the ancient world. And particularly as the first millennium BCE goes on, we get the emergence of new great empires, like particularly the Roman Empire based over here at the city of Rome. Rome is able to unite the whole Mediterranean basin. This turns into this kind of super motor for social development. Geography changes meanings. Um, as it does so, social development is pushed up higher and higher still. Now, by the end of the first millennium BCE, You've got a series of empires that have arisen all across Eurasia, from the Roman Empire out at the left of this map over to the Han Dynasty Chinese Empire at the right, string of other empires in between. Um, the Roman Empire has the Mediterranean Sea as this inner highway. It's always the biggest and richest of these empires. But all of them are very powerful empires. Now, as the empires get bigger, you can probably guess at this point what I'm about to say. As the empires get bigger, they change the meanings of geography further as social development increases. And in particular, what these ancient empires do is start changing the meaning of the geography around their borders. And in particular, the geography of what on this map I call the Steppe Highway, running from Hungary in the west all the way out to Manchuria in the Far East. This band of very arid, flat grasslands running across Eurasia that um, once you've got domesticated horses, and big domesticated horses really, you can move very, very quickly back and forth along this steppe highway. Once you have really big empires to the south of the steppes, there are people you can trade with and people you can raid as you move back and forth along the steppe highway. 
So the rise of the big empires kind of transforms what the steps mean. You get the evolution of big nomadic empires on the steps. As this happens, the nomadic empires interact more and more with the stable agrarian empires. They start to undermine these agrarian empires. In the early to mid-first millennium CE, certainly by the, by the year 200 CE, they're starting to cause the empires to collapse. So much movement is going on. The migrations are spiraling out of control. The empires are, are breaking down under pressure. And in particular, the, the big thing that happens is people from the different ends of Eurasia start to merge their disease pools. Um, this is something I now feel very much of an expert on. A couple of weeks ago, I went off to give a talk about the German translation of my book. And I did five different German-speaking cities in five days, personally merging their disease pools as I traveled. By the fifth day, I honestly got I could barely stand up anymore. I couldn't speak, which was perhaps a mercy, but I, I, I was so sick. Now, in the first millennium CE, the first couple of centuries CE, we see this on a spectacular scale in Eurasia. Horrific new diseases break out and play a huge part in undermining the ancient empires. All across Eurasia, the big empires collapse, social development plunges. For all kinds of reasons that I, I won't bore you with right now, the western end of Eurasia never again gets reunited into a single great empire. The eastern end does, though. In 589, China is reunited into a single great empire. And when that happens, um, same old story, changes the meanings of geography once again. Reuniting China to a single empire in the 6th century allows them to create a kind of new agricultural frontier in the south of China based on rice cultivation. Huge increase in productivity. And um, they're able to go uh, even further than that. This, I think, is one of the really interesting things in medieval Chinese history. They create a kind of man-made version of the Mediterranean Sea by digging the Grand Canal that um, links the fertile rice-growing areas of the Yangtze Basin and points further south, links it um, all the way up to the great cities of the north. The Chinese economy booms in the 7th, 8th, 9th centuries. Um, this, in many ways, is the golden age of Chinese culture. If you read classical Chinese poetry, it will probably be poetry from the Tang dynasty of these years. The Tang and the succeeding Song dynasty, this is the golden age of pre-modern Chinese science. All kinds of inventions, all kinds of technological breakthroughs are happening. And this is the period when Eastern social development rises higher than West, Western social development. As it does, it once again begins to re uh, reconnect the whole of Eurasia, the overlapping zones of trade and warfare, Mongol migrations, Black Death, all kinds of things happen that people haven't really been looking for. But similar kind of recreation of these trade zones. Now, all kinds of stuff is getting invented out in China in this period. But I want to draw your attention to just two things that are, are popping up out of China in the 13th and 14th centuries, which push social development upward, um, but also change the meaning of geography spectacularly. And this is where the story really begins to sort of reach its, its climax, is with these inventions in the 13th and 14th centuries. And both of the inventions spread like wildfire. Once they get invented, everybody loves them. Now, the first of the inventions is practical ocean-going ships. There have been ships before this that could cross the oceans, like Viking longboats, but they're not very reliable, and they have to have very specific circumstances to do this. By the 13th century, the Chinese are building ships that can reliably sail across 
thousands and thousands of miles. And in case anybody doubts the truth of this, in 2009, a group of entrepreneurs on Taiwan built a replica of an early 15th century Chinese junk. They sailed it all the way from Taiwan to San Francisco. And uh, I don't know if any of you went down and, and saw it, but it stayed several months in the San Francisco Bay refitting. So they refitted it in the San Francisco Bay. They turned it around. And the difficult part with pre-modern ships is actually not getting from China to California. It's getting back again because of the winds and tides. That's the tricky bit. So they turn around. They're going to prove this can be done. Off they go. They sail the whole way back to Taiwan. They get within 20 miles of the coast of Taiwan. And in the middle of the night, a steel freighter slices the ship in two. And that's what you see on the top right. Now, the good news is nobody died. It was all fine. Um, the bad news is it's, it's kind of disappointing that that's how it ended. But yeah, obviously, what the, in 15th century, no steel freighters. Um, the, the problem with doing this now, of course, is um, replica junk, no GPS, no sonar. No, you don't see the steel freighters. But yeah, in the 15th century, didn't have steel freighters. So this proves you know, beyond any reasonable doubt that this, this could be done. And this, these inventions, the, the inventions that make ocean-going ships possible, they spread like wildfire. Within a century or at the most two, they spread all the way to the backward fringe of Western Eurasia. Northwest Europeans have, have got these things. Now, second invention the Chinese come up with, which changes everything, spreads even faster. This, in fact, is the fastest spreading invention the world has ever seen up to this point. And this invention is the gun. Everybody loves guns. On um, the top left, what you see is the oldest known true gun in the world, from the year 1288, found in Manchuria in northeast China. What you see on the bottom right is an illustration from a manuscript in Oxford, um, painted in the year 1327, uh, less than 40 years later, showing a much improved version of a gun. So in basically a, a human lifespan, this thing has spread 4,000 miles over lands from China to Western Europe. Everybody loves guns. So, these two inventions, these set off the most spectacular transformation of geography the world had seen up till this point. What I mean by that, um, let's have a map. Here we are. Western Europe, at this point, to say around the year 1400, Western Europe is very disadvantaged by geography. It's a cold, wet place. It sticks out into the shores of the North Atlantic. It's a long way from the real centers of action. The centers of action in the Western world are down here in the Mediterranean basin, Italy, Venice, the Ottoman Empire. That's where everything is going on. Northwest Europe, miserable place. I know this. I grew up there. Miserable place. Geography has put it under a sore disadvantage. Now, having said that, interesting geographical fact. Western Europe is about 3,000 miles in a straight line from America. Eastern Asia is about 6,000 miles. The way you would have to sail, catching the winds and tides, about 6,000 miles from North America. Twice as far away. Now, through all of human history, up to about the year 1400, this has been completely irrelevant to anything. It's a fact, it's true, but it just doesn't matter. Because if you can't cross the oceans, it doesn't matter which, which of them you can sort cross least. It, it really is irrelevant to anything. Once you can cross the oceans, though, this abruptly goes from being a trivial geographical fact to being the most important fact in the world. It's a bit like what I was saying when I was talking about the origins of agriculture. Agriculture begins in Southwest Asia, the hilly flanks, not because hilly flankers are more energetic or cleverer than anybody else, but because it's easier there. Geography has made it easier. 
in the 15th century, it's easier for Europeans to cross to the Americas than it is for East Asians because it's twice as close. There's also other pressures on Europeans. They know that the real wealth of the world is in East Asia. They've got these great new ships, these guns they can use to kill the people they meet when they get to the other end. They want to get to East Asia. Some of them are so deluded about the size of the world. Christopher Columbus, for example. Columbus is convinced it's only 4,000 miles from Portugal to China. He is way off the mark. Everybody else knows it's three times as far. They all tell him this. He refuses to believe them. He sets off sailing west to get to the east, bumps into the Americas, changes everything. But even if Columbus had been a bit cleverer and hadn't discovered the Americas, other people would have done so very, very soon. In 1500, another Italian sailor, a guy named Cabral, is trying to sail to India. And to get to India, you have to swing out way out into the Atlantic Ocean to pick up the, t the, the winds that will take you around the bottom of Africa. He swings a little bit too far. He bumps into Brazil. Once Europeans have got these ships, it's inevitable they're going to discover the Americas. It's easier for Europeans to do this than for East Asians. Europeans go on to be the first people, the first non-Americans, to find, colonize, and plunder the Americas and start drawing the Americas into an economic system based on their own countries. They change the meaning of geography spectacularly. What I, the precise thing I mean by that is that these new ships, they, they turn the Atlantic Ocean into a kind of Goldilocks ocean. It's neither too big nor too small. What that means, it's big enough that in different shores around the Atlantic, wildly different things are happening. So up in Europe, you've got the sort of early stages of, sort of manufacturing economies being developed. Down in Africa, you've got totally different sorts of societies where people can capture slaves. Europeans can capture slaves. Over in the Americas, you're growing completely different sorts of crops. Sugar and tobacco flourish. Cotton flourishes. The Europeans turned the North Atlantic into this famous triangular economy that you probably heard about in high school, where you can sail around the economy from Europe down to Africa, over to the Americas, back again, um, picking up different goods at different points, selling at each point along your trade, making profits everywhere you go, generating enormous revenues. Now, that's only the beginning of what happens when the geography changes meaning. Europeans realize, boy, this is, this is great. We're getting so rich. If we really understood how the winds and the tides work and how the stars move, though, we could get so much richer. And Europeans start thinking about these problems much harder than before. They start developing entirely new ways to look at nature. In order to answer these questions about how the winds and the tides work, how the stars move, they've got to come up with entirely new kinds of mathematics. They promptly do so. Uh, Newton and Leibniz at the end of the 17th century, both of them invent calculus, which you need to solve these problems. Both of them then spend the rest of their lives accusing the other of stealing the idea from them. But uh, a cascade of breakthroughs follows. In mathematics, physics, chemistry, biology, Europe has a 17th century scientific revolution. China doesn't, India doesn't, the Turkish Empire doesn't. Not because Europeans are smarter than these other people, but because they're asking different questions. Geography has changed its meaning, forcing new questions upon the Europeans. As their natural scientific understanding of the world takes off, in the 18th century, they start applying these sorts of methods back onto their own society in what we normally call the Enlightenment, asking how does society work? Can we have a political science which would explain our society?
By the end of the 18th century, profits are being driven up so high by the Atlantic economy, particularly in Britain, which is coming gradually to dominate the Atlantic economy. Profits are being driven up so high that wages are being driven up as well. And British entrepreneurs are finding that they're being priced out of their export markets in Europe. They can't produce the goods as cheaply as other people because the wages are being driven up so high. What they need, they realize, is some way to substitute machinery for labor. So they start trying to mechanize production. They go even further. They start tapping into the energy of fossil fuels to drive their machines. As they do this, Britain has an industrial revolution. And again, not because the Brits are smarter or work harder than other people, but because they're asking different questions. Different questions are thrust on them by geography. Coal and steam allow the British to project their power globally. They conquer India, they crush China. By 1860, they bestride the world like a colossus. Now, all of this has happened basically because of the way geography has changed its meanings since the year 1400. And that's why I say it's geography that explains why the West rules. So, okay, that, that's almost enough history for now. When I, I was in high school, back in the dark days of the 1970s, when I was in high school, that actually really was enough history for now. It's something that didn't really strike me at the time, but all of our modern history textbooks in British high schools ended in the year 1870. History came to a full stop, as we said, in Britain. Remarkable coincidence. Just at, I mean, I'm sure there was no sinister motive, of course, but just at the point that Britain bestrode the world like a colossus, history came to an end. Now, the problem, of course, is you can end your textbooks in 1870, but the British could not actually stop history in 1870. The same mechanisms kept on working after 1870. The mechanisms that had <clears throat> turned the Atlantic into a Goldilocks ocean carry on working. In the late 19th century, you get steamships, you get railroads, drawing the economies of Central Europe, the Germans in particular, and North America, the US in particular, drawing these into this British-dominated world economy. As this happens, same old story once again, people in Germany and the US, they find they can't run an industrial capitalist economy in quite the same ways as the British because they don't live in Britain. It's a different country. They have to tinker with it to make it work. As they tinker with it, they discover, oh, we are making it work better than the British do. The British like to laugh at the Germans and Americans and say they can't do anything properly. By 1900, they discover the Germans and Americans are doing it better than the British. And this is a graphing of slightly bewildering, massive colored lines here, but it's showing you per capita levels of industrialization from 1750 to 1913. And the big thing that we see in this graph, of course, is first of all, the British takeoff down here, leaping ahead of the rest of the world, and then accelerating from about 1860 onward, the German and particularly the American catch-up. By the year 1900, the U.S. has displaced Great Britain as the core of the Western economy that dominates the world. Now, I did not study history in an American high school, but I've been reliably assured by friends who did that U.S. modern history textbooks all stopped around the year 1970. Remarkable coincidence. The American problem once again, is that geography still refused to stop working in 1970 when the U.S. dominated the, uh, bestrode the world like a colossus. Same processes keep working. The sort of processes that made the Atlantic a Goldilocks ocean then basically shrunk it into a pond. 
In the late 20th century, these shrink the Pacific into a pond. This, of course, is you know, one of the, the reasons that San Francisco becomes a, a great global city. But what it also does is draws East Asia into this global economy. East Asians, like um, North Americans are discovered in the late 19th century, the late 20th century, East Asians discover ways to, to rejig Western capitalism and industrialism to make them work back in East Asia. East Asia starts bounding up after the Western core and catching up. East Asian cities become as remarkable as Western cities. And this at the top, of course, the famous bird's nest in Beijing built for the Olympics. And down at the bottom right is the architect Ai Weiwei, who, as I'm sure you know, got arrested a week or two ago. Um, Chinese have learned that you can build cities that are even more spectacular than Western cities. But if you want to do that, you must have architects. And if you are going to have architects, you have to learn to put up with them being annoying. This is what architects and artists do. They, they are annoying people. I, I, for a while, I was a, a, a dean at Stanford, responsible for the humanities department. I learned this firsthand. Artists, very annoying people. So if you're going to do this, you, you have to put up with annoying people, I'm afraid. But the bottom line here, this is an inexorable process driven by geography, something that people can't really control this process. So, okay, that is why the West rules for now. That is the title of my book. To wrap up, though, I want to spend um, the last few minutes turning to the subtitle of the book, The Patterns of History and What They Reveal About the Future. Now, I suggest in my book that there's two real lessons that we can draw from history, uh, learn from history for thinking about the future. The first of these lessons is that we can identify the big trends, the big forces that have driven global history. Second thing we can do is identify the, the countervailing forces that might derail these trends, because the trends don't just play out in a simple linear or even logarithmic kind of way. They get derailed. This, these, I think, are the two big things we can learn from history. The forces that drive it and, and what derails it. Now, taking the first of these lessons, the forces that drive history. If we take um, the 20th century rates of increase in social development in the Eastern and Western cores and simply project them forward, so you know, take what I calculated from 1900 to 2000, project them forward to, for 2000 to 2100, we get a new graph. This is the graph we get. Red line is the east again. The blue line is the west. What you see here is the red line, the eastern line, will catch up with the western line in the year 2103. So make a note of that. Put that in your diary. That is the point at which western rule will end. Now, um, I've always been told it's a very good idea. If you're going to predict things, be as precise as possible. So I've been very precise for you. The other thing I've always been told to do is predict things which will not come true or false within your own lifetime. Um, very, very important. Uh, on Monday, um, we had a, a little debate down at Stanford uh, between uh, there, there's me and one of my colleagues from the political science department and Frank Fukuyama, who's just published his new book about, uh, actually about Eastern and Western history. Um, and uh, Professor Fukuyama is best known for this book he wrote, uh, uh, published in the early 90s, The End of History, predicting that with the fall of the Soviet Union, history had basically reached its end point, and that societies had developed as far as they were going to go. Now everybody was going to be liberal capitalists. 
Now, his great mistake, as I and his other critics like to point out, is to make a prediction where you'll know within 15 years whether you were right or not. Um, mine, who can tell? So, okay, Eastern, the, 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 the implication of the trends of history is that the East will catch up with the West, um, actually not in the year 2103, that's obviously silly to try to be that precise, but by the end of the 21st century, we will see the East catching up. That's one um, thing that this graph shows you. Uh, where does the point go? Here we are. Crossing over here, which comes to um, where would it be about this point here, 2103. What the graph also shows us, though, the point where these lines cross, going along now this way onto the vertical axis, um, the point is round about 5,000 points on my social development scale. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the 15,000 years since the end of the last ice age, um, social development in the West has risen by about 900 points. 900 points takes you from cave paintings at Altamira to the Long Now Foundation. The implication of a steady state um, change across the 21st century is that there will be four times as much change in the 21st century as we've seen in the entire time since the end of the Ice Age. Now, that is a fairly mind-boggling sort of prognosis uh, to, to make. Now, all kinds of people have speculated on, on what a world uh, at 5,000 points might look like. Many, many predictions have been made. Um, most of them, I'm sure, uh, when you look at predictions that were made in the past about what the future would be like, they're always comically wrong. And I'm sure the predictions that have been made now, many of them right here in the Bay Area, will also turn out to be comically wrong. But having said that, um, they do give us a sense, I think, of what the world might come to look like if we do see the great trends just continuing out into the future without a change. Um, this graph here, this is a graph drawn um, by the futurist Ray Kurzweil, who again, I'm sure many of you know Kurzweil's work uh, probably a lot better than I do. What this graph is showing us is um, the, the power of supercomputers since the year 1990. Um, graphed on a logarithmic scale here. So each unit you go up the vertical axis, um, you're actually going 10 times as far in straightforward linear measurements as you would on a normal kind of scale. And what Kurzweil was trying to show is just how strong and consistent this trend has been out here up to, uh, well, his book was published in the year 2005, so out as far as the range of then planned for supercomputers. Kurzweil pointed out that if this trend were to continue, by the year 2013, so very close to now, we will have brain scanning so precise that we can generate neuron-by-neuron-level scans of your brain. Your actual brain can be scanned into a computer um, with all of your individual memories. Everything will be in there. Because after all, the, you know, the way your brain works is electrical signals flash back and forth between the neurons in your brain. So we'll scan an exact replica of your brain by the year 2013. By the year 2025, up here, we'll have supercomputers so powerful that they can actually run this simulation of your brain. Kurzweil suggests that what that means is that that um, program running on that computer will be another you. Now, a lot of people say, no, it's not. There's a lot of reasons why maybe that's a silly thing to say. But the, the implication of the trends are that by the year 2025, there'll be computers so powerful, they can mimic the actions of an individual human. By the year 2045, 
if the trends continue growing exponentially, we will have computing power so great that all of the thought processes of all of the 7 billion people living on Earth can be uploaded to mainframes. What Kurzweil predicts from this, he says at that point, we will have reached what he likes to call the singularity, the point at which change becomes so fast, it's basically instantaneous. All of the intelligence of all of the beings on Earth will be merged into one superintelligence, one machine-based life form that is greater, trillions of times greater, than the sum of all the biological intelligence on Earth. Now, if that happens, I think Frank Fukuyama's end of history actually will be upon us. The sort of forces I've been talking about, biology, sociology, geography, they will surely cease to mean anything at all in a world that looks even vaguely like that. So that's one outcome. Second lesson that we learn is that forces do derail these trends. Um, if you look back through history, there have been these great social collapses. And the slightly alarming thing is that if you look at the really big social collapses in the past, the forces that drove them um, tend to be uh, rather similar to forces that many observers worry about in the world right now. Uncontrollable large-scale migration is one of these forces. The breakdown of major states, complete collapse of states, another one of the forces, linked, of course, very often to the migrations. The spread of epidemic diseases in new forms, again, often linked to the migrations. Um, massive famine, as people start to outrun the food supply, exacerbated by disease migration and state failure. And then the fifth of the forces, which is always in the mix somewhere, is rapid climate change in a way that people can't control. And obviously, you don't need me to tell you that these are big worries in the 21st century world. So one prediction we might make is that the 21st century might actually be heading toward the sort of collapse we saw with the end of the Roman Empire. Now, I actually think that's highly unlikely for one very good reason. Um, and the reason is this. We now have the ability to annihilate ourselves completely. This is the biggest nuclear explosion ever, um, a 58-megaton bomb that the Soviets set off in 1961. If we now have a massive international global-scale social collapse, um, I think it's highly unlikely to play out like the fall of the Roman Empire. I think it's much more likely we're looking at humans annihilating themselves in nuclear war. Okay, to wrap up. Um, <laughs> now... You know, if you're anything like me, when I travel around, you go to airport bookstores, because you always forget to take a book with you. You go to airport bookstores, and they're full of these books by political pundits telling us what the future will be like. You know, America in 2050, the world in 2100, things like this. I love these books. I always buy them. I never learn my lesson, which is I get 15 pages into them and get infuriated and can't read any further. The problem I have with most of these books is that the, the picture you get in them of the future is that the future is basically like now. It's like now, but it's faster. I mean, it's like the Jetsons. It's faster. It's shinier. China will be a bit richer than the rest of us, but it's basically like now. Now, that's the one thing I think we can say is definitely not going to happen. The future is not going to be like now. The 21st century is going to be a great race between something like Kurzweil's singularity and some kind of catastrophe that leaves all previous human catastrophes in the shade. I don't see how we can possibly have a middle outcome here. I think one of these two things is on the cards. And the slightly amusing thing, well, amusing for me at least, when I was writing this book, Why the West Rules, slightly amusing thing is either way it turns out, 
whether the East or the West dominates the planet is simply going to lose its meaning. By the time the East catches up with the West, that's just no longer going to be very important. So, okay, the great question for our times then, I would say, is about not what I wrote my book about, not whether the West will continue to rule. It's the question I came to at the end of the book. It's whether humanity as a whole is going to break through to an entirely new level of existence before disaster strikes us down permanently. So on that cheery note, I, I will stop. And thank you very much for listening this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Let's have a seat. You know, oddly enough, we've had half the people you quoted uh, in this series. Uh, Frank Fukuyama gave one more shot at the end of history. And, uh, Ray Kurzweil showed his graphs all going toward the atmosphere, stratosphere. There's a thing in your book uh, which was a geographical element that maybe this is a good time to fill in, which is what happened to the impact of the steps and the nomadic civil empires and so on when gunpowder became a big event. You want to just run that one down? Yeah, yeah. I think that, that's a, a great question to raise. Um, you know, through, through most of human history, the steppes is a place where very few people live at all because you, it's really hard to make a living there. I mean, if you're a hunter, hunter-gatherer, um, very difficult to make a living. There's just not enough to eat. There's very little wild human food available there. It's not really until um, people start to domesticate animals that you can make the steps work for you at all. Because the thing is, once you domesticate animals, you can then move on to the steps. And you know, we as humans, we can't eat the grass growing on the steps. But cows can. And the cows eat the grass, we eat the cows. So the steps begin to become productive. And then when you start domesticating horses, which probably happened on the steppes around, somewhere around 4,000 BC, when you do that, you begin, initially the horse is just like a, a, a fancy version of a cow, and they're eating the horses for quite a long time. But eventually they get to the point they figure out how to hook the horse up to other things. You begin to be able to move around. The steps become much better then because you can move from oasis to oasis, support much larger populations. The empires start to grow. You can, by that point, you can ride the horses, so you can ride down and raid um, these empires. The steps begin to be really a very wealthy part of the world. And this carries on. They, they go quite suddenly, um, say between about 1,000 and 500 BC. They go from being this backwater to being an incredibly important part of the world system. And then even more abruptly, um, between, I, I would say, yeah, really between the years 1500 and 1700 AD or CE, they abruptly stop being a major part of the story. And the big reason for that is, is simply what you mentioned, the gunpowder. Mm -hmm. And what happens is... Um, Step nomads, uh, it seems pretty clear, the step nomads have a big part in the initial creation of guns and using guns. And a step nomad, of course, he can point a gun and fire it just as well as anybody else. So, actually, I should say he or she. Um, step nomad societies are among the few in world history where women have regularly been warriors. So these step nomads, they can point a gun as well as anybody else. But what they can't do is that they can't raise really large numbers of men the way a settled agrarian empire can. And they can't pay for them to train year-round. 
the way the agrarian empires are beginning to be able to do. And they can't train them to fire volleys uh, in this sort of way. They can, so a nomad can ride up and shoot and then ride away again. But the infantry from the big empires, they can they draw up six ranks deep, and the front rank can you know, load its muskets and set them up on the little stand and blast away at the nomads as they ride around. And they can kneel down and start reloading. So it takes an eternity to reload these early muskets. Second rank can blast away. Then they kneel down and reload. Third rank, and on you go. And by the time the last rank is fired, front rank's ready to go again. And up you stand and you shoot again. And this is so important because like, if, if I had one of these um, 15th, 16th century arquebuses or muskets right now, um, I mean, I could hit one of you guys in the front row. It's always a bad idea to sit in the front. I could hit one of you guys in the front row. I could maybe hit somebody in the middle. But if I was told to hit an individual in the back row, there's no way I could possibly do that. But if we've got 500 of us all blast away at the same time, we can hit you know, everything that's in front of us. We'll get hit. And so when you... Uh, 15, in, like in the year 1500, nomads normally win their battles against infantry musketeer armies. By 1600, nomads sometimes win their battles. By 1700, nomads basically almost never win the battles anymore. And as this happens, the empires are able to move onto the steps and shut them down. And once you stop nomads moving around, or once you make it so they've got to get your permission to move around, you've basically killed the whole nomad thing. And this changes the entire story. They, they can't spread the disease in the old sort of way. Just everything changes by 1700 because the, the steps, you know, as Europeans and East Asians open up the oceans, they, they simultaneously close the steps. And this is what, what really changes geography. You know, a version of your sequence, the difference between the Grand Canal being the waterway that, that tied together China once they built it and the Mediterranean, which was there all the time. They didn't have to build it. And the Mediterranean being a somewhat wilder body of water than your average canal, um, by mastering the Mediterranean, it seems like the West was then, the questions, the skills, the technology, all that stuff to master the Mediterranean, then they could master the Atlantic, and then they could master the Pacific, and, and the Pacific War was sort of the fighting out of East versus West, and who actually, yeah. whose lake is it? And uh, that was determined in four years' time. Um, this is pretty much a, a maritime story. Yeah, I think the, the oceans are incredibly important in any, any global historical narrative. And... Um, yeah, because my, my whole shtick I kept saying is about how geography changes its meanings as, as development increases or, or falls. And so the oceans, you know, through history, the oceans have constantly been changing their meanings. And for a very long time, big bodies of water are obstacles um, more than anything else. And of course, the Atlantic and the Pacific mm. are basically uncrossable. Um, and th this is one of the things that, that makes global history so interesting, is that after modern humans move into the Americas, so you know, somewhere between 12 and 15,000 BC, so somewhere in that ballpark, um, the Bering Strait land bridge disappears. And after that, the oceans are so big that it's only very occasionally from then on that people cross over from the old world to the new world. And so this makes this great kind of natural experiment. You can look at how new world civilizations developed and how old world civilizations developed. And you've got two basically independent tracks up to the point um, the Spaniards go over there and start slaughtering everybody by breathing their bugs on them. Um, and so, yeah, the early on the oceans are big barriers. Then gradually seas get turned from barriers into highways. So initially, of course, the little seas early on. 
Mm -hmm. uh, like uh, the Mediterranean Sea, the North Sea, uh, the Sea of Japan, mm -hmm. and then gradually bigger and bigger seas until mm -hmm. we get to the point now where, and people, people argue over this, but some would say, yeah, we're now reaching the point where the oceans are basically starting to become irrelevant to the story. I don't really think that's true. I mean, you, you look at the volume of goods shipped by container ships across the Pacific. The oceans are still very, very much with us. Um, you know, we still, it's still possible for pirates to shut down world trade. I think this is, a, for a historian, this is just so cool. I realize if you, if you get kidnapped by a pirate, this is not cool. And people who have been kidnapped by this would probably be horrified that I can sit here and say such callous things. But for a historian, it's really cool that pirates come back in because this is exactly what a historian would predict. The golden ages of piracy are when you get a great upspike in, in um, long-distance trade on the oceans combined with weak state control of the oceans. And the problem we've got now is we, you know, we could easily shut down these pirates in the Malacca Straits or in East Africa, but who's going to do it? Like, who, I mean, it's sort of, you know, it has to be the U.S., really. But the U.S. is not going to just walk in and start shooting everybody again all over the world. And this is, you know, the Romans had the same problem, the Chinese had the same problem. Once the great empires decide, yeah, we're going to bite the bullet and crack down, pirates go out of business. But at the moment, the pirates are not going out of business. So the next geographical scale, uh, and here's a question from Brad in the long view, how do you see the geography of space travel changing history? The next geographical scale is the planet as a whole, uh, which we seem to be engaging in two modes. One is climate change at a global scale, as a global problem, and also the prospect of, of space travel. Yeah, yes. Uh, and then these two things, because raise very, I think very different sorts of problems and challenges. When I started writing my book, I, um, I, I'm a huge science fiction fan. And so when I started writing the book, I thought, yeah, this is going to be great. I'm going to end this book talking about space travel. It's going to be really cool. And then I started actually trying to learn something about space travel. And, you know, we all know it's a long way to other stars. We all grasp this basic point. But I think it, it takes a bit of work to grasp just how big these differences are. And, um, again, I'm sure there's lots of people in the room who know a lot more about astrophysics than I do. But um, the sort of the take-home message I brought away with me is that unless there's something about physics that we are currently not grasping, there is not going to be much in the way of really fruitful interplanetary travel going on. Of course, we're going to be able to go to the other planets in our solar system, and there may be all kinds of really great stuff out there that we're able to do that will change the human story. And um, you know, I fall in the camp, as I tend to think any sensible person does, of thinking that there are a lot of Earth-like planets out there. Then, you know, prior to 1995, we didn't know for certain that any other planets existed outside our solar system. And now we know of you know, all these hundreds of them. And all the astronomers are saying, yes, of course, you know, within the next few years, we're going to identify Earth-like planets. There's probably hundreds of millions of them out in the universe. Um, so, you know, in theory, yeah, we could hop around to all these Earth-like planets. It's going to be great. Um, but they're a really long way away. And so I suspect unless there's something we don't get about physics, that this is simply never going to happen. The climate change, though, uh, that, I think that simply is going to happen. So that is a, it, a is, bit more scary. Is um, climate change a, a geographical issue in your spectrum of considerations? Yeah, now I'm, uh, I have been criticized by, by thoughtless people who don't, don't care enough about my, my feelings, criticized by people for being a, a little bit loose. When I talk about um, biology, sociology, and geography, I am being very, these are very loose and sloppy concepts. So you know, where exactly climate change fits into the, this nexus 
Uh, there certainly is room to argue about that. I mean, I would see it very much as a geographical force, but one that can, to some extent, be driven by what humans do, as we're seeing at the moment. And one that, of course, also, it sort of ratchets up the pressure on humans, forces you to start thinking about um, how you do things in new kinds of ways. And so um, I, I guess you know, my guess at where climate change is taking us is that, um, you know, like it or not, there's going to be some very substantial global warming. And particularly, I mean, I like this phrase that I think it was Hunter Lovins came up with originally, that we should talk about global weirding rather than global warming. That we're really, you know, certainly we are looking at an upward trend in temperature, but we're also looking at a huge increase in the wildness of the climate and the, you know, the amount of rain you get in the big storms out here in, in Northern California or the scale of the droughts you'll get, say, you know, further inland out in the southwest. Um, the, the length of our fire season. All of these things are going to get wilder and weirder. And I think, you know, this is going to happen. We, we've got to just take this one on the chin. This is going to happen. There's stuff we can do about it, certainly, but we don't seem to be scared enough to do this stuff. Uh, another one of the, the, um, the sayings I use throughout this book is that history is driven by, by people that human beings are, uh, what is it I say? Human beings are frightened, lazy, and uh, stupid. Something along those lines. And this is what drives history, is these three things. We've got to be frightened of things to react to them properly. I, I think we started to get scared of climate change, and then we forgot about it, because very short-term scary things happened with the economy, and we focused on that instead. I think you know, whatever we do now, we're going to see massive uh, melting of the polar ice caps. We're going to see significant rise uh, in the sea level. Um, we're going to see major change. Uh, I like to think that we are capable of reacting to this. Climate change doesn't have to be disastrous for humans, but it could be disastrous for humans if we don't kind of pull ourselves together reasonably quickly. I think it, it potentially... I mean, it's not the kind of thing that... The world can heat up five or six or seven degrees. That's not going to kill us. This is going to change everything, but it's not going to kill us. What will kill us, I think, is the way we react to climate change. Mm. And particularly, there's this huge band of the societies that are most vulnerable to climate change, kind of arcing up through central southern Africa, through central Asia, out into East Asia, where you've got most of the world's poorest people, most of the most unstable governments in the world. The fastest nuclear proliferation is going on in this region. Um, the world's water supplies are under the most extreme pressure in this region. I mean, guys, just so depressing. And when you start thinking about it, and particularly if you factor in that for the short term at least, the, the most important energy resources for the developed economies for the next 20 years are still going to be the oil of the Middle East. This is terrifying. Um, if things were to get out of control in the Middle East, if there's a nuclear showdown between Iran and Israel, I don't think it matters what administration is in charge in the U.S. There is no way the United States can stay out of a nuclear confrontation between Iran and Israel. If the United States gets involved, I find it really hard to see how Russia, which is still the world's biggest nuclear power, if their nuclear weapons actually work. That's another question. But if they do, they're still the world's biggest nuclear power. I find it a little hard to see how they stay out if the U.S. gets involved in a nuclear confrontation between Iran and Israel. So the, how we react to climate change, that's what really worries me in the short term. Well, there's another geographical angle on climate change. You were describing the great vulnerabilities to climate being in the global south. And as things get warmer, people move to higher elevations and they move to higher latitudes. Mm -hmm. They move toward the poles. Mm -hmm. 
And the major difference geographically between the south and the north is that as you go toward the pole in the north, there's more, more land. Europe widens out and, and North America widens out. But in the south, as you go toward the pole, there's less land. And so India and Latin America and Africa all narrow down to, to nothing. And all you've got left is Antarctica. So um, presumably, if people are trying to leave the global south because of climate change, they can't go south, they have to go north. That sounds like a problem. Yes, yes. Um, this, again, uh, with the, the issues I was talking about right at the end, with these sort of five horsemen of the apocalypse that always seem to be involved in the great social collapses. Um, you know, a lot of people in Europe and the U.S. get very bent out of shape currently about immigration into Western Europe and, and the U.S. from, from points south. Um, I mean, it seems to me that when you look back at European and U.S. history across the last century or so, on the whole, immigration has been a really good thing for these economies. And my feeling is that the kind of immigration we're dealing with at the moment continues to be in that category. The scary kind of immigration, though, is if we see... Um, well, there was a British report came out five years ago which predicted that we were going to see 200 million of what it called climate migrants out of this global south area by the year 2050. 200 million, that is a lot of people. If you're getting tens of millions of people migrating around Central Asia, South Asia, it's getting very difficult to see how the governments in these regions are going to be able to cope with these sorts of movements. If you're getting tens of millions of people moving into Russia, you might say, in a way, that's, a, that's good, because Russian population is collapsing, so they're all drinking themselves to death. But um, <laughs> how is this actually going to play out on the ground? I mean, this is, I think, yeah, this is the terrifying prospect. Do we have the level of institutions... Um, which were basically created in the 19th century. Do we have the institutions that can deal with these kinds of global challenges? Ah, invention institutions can be a whole subject. But uh, here's a question from Dwayne O'Brien. How do you think the rise of collaborative tools for the last 20 years will affect all of us? The internet, communications, wikis, mm -hmm. smartphones, and so on. Uh, is that a, a major player in all this in terms of West-East and, I suppose, Kurzweil's uh, rate of this and that? Or is it just another bloody tool? Yeah, I think I mean, it's an interesting question, really interesting question. If, um, you, know, if you think about the, the great forces that have been transforming the world in the last 50 years, um, nearly all of them are things that have been happening in the West. And, I mean, obviously not all of them completely. South Korea is a robotic center that can compete with almost anywhere in the world. But still, on the whole, um, these are things that are happening in the West. And, um, I mean, if you look at the world today, I think it's something like one-seventh of the population of the world lives in um, North America or Europe. But something like uh, two-thirds of the world's research and development money is spent in North America or Europe. Two-thirds of the world's advanced weapons, and basically virtually all of its nuclear weapons are in Europe or North America. I think all of its major aircraft carriers are based in Europe or North America. Um, two-thirds of something else. So maybe it's two-thirds of the patents um, that are patented. I know, but overwhelmingly, it's still the West is the engine driving things forward. And I think you know, the, the big question to put on the table is... Does this mean that uh, the Western domination, particularly the, the technological end of things, which I, I do tend to think is going to be the big motor in the relatively short term for what happens to us, does the Western domination at the moment of the technology mean that, in fact, the West is going to be able to kind of hold off and, and fight off this great global shift? 
Or is this just the kind of the, the tail end of the older Western dominance? So, mm-hmm. you know, at the moment, it's uh, you know, Microsoft or whatever you might tend to care to think about, the, the great corporations doing things. But 20 years from now, it might be Lenovo or Tata or one of these corporations. These are mm-hmm. the big global corporations. And this, I think, this is a very difficult question to answer. Because you know, the, the newspapers and the weekly magazines are full of the doom and gloom prognoses about the end of American power and so on. But um, for a historian, the really amusing thing about these is how, <clears throat> how closely they can be paralleled. If you look back in history, if you look back to the 1970s, all these people are writing up American power. You look back to the 1930s, again, all these people are writing up American power. America plunged into the Great Depression in the 1930s. In the 1940s, it turns around, defeats the Nazis, overthrows Japan, becomes the great global power. In the 1970s, we're plunged into stagflation. Everybody's miserable. Jimmy Carter goes on TV wearing a cardigan, and everybody's appalled. The world is coming to an end. In the 1980s, we overthrow the Soviet Union. Um, So I think it's certainly not beyond the, be- the realm of possibility, then, the, then in the 2010s, the U.S. will tip into another crisis, probably a fiscal crisis, and then the 2020s will bounce back to overcome all its rivals. I think that's certainly very possible, that um, the Western powers will be able to manage this process of change. What I think is much less likely is if, we, if things don't change so much that the whole question simply becomes irrelevant. But if we look at the question again 50, 60, 70 years down the line, mm-hmm. it's not going to be the West. So I guess I, I tend to think there's certainly that it's possible to manage these processes. It's not possible for great men or great political institutions to, to stop them dead in their tracks. Well, that comes to a question that Brad, uh, the earlier question raises. If uh, you were to try to disprove your theory or someone else were to try to disprove your theory, how would they go about it? What, what yeah, would it take to take you down? I think there's a lot of ways uh, that I could be wrong. It pains me to admit this. There are a lot of ways that I could be wrong. And I think um, you know, what, I'm do- I, uh, what I'm doing here, you know, it, it revolves around this social development index. So the social development index is one of the ways I could be wrong. And in fact, I think there seems to me there's three major ways that I could be wrong about what I'm saying in this index. And one of them is you could look at this index, all these numbers I'm banding around all the time, and you could say, you know, this is just stupid. That is the only word for what you're doing. It's stupid. You can't quantify human history in this way. You're just wasting your time completely. And then you could try to show, I mean, a lot of people do think that. I mean, I find their arguments somewhat baffling, personally, but a lot of people do think this. So you could try to make that point, and you could make this argument. A second thing you could do, you could say, okay, um, you know, I share this, the basic concept, you know, quantifying things, comparing them, that's maybe not a bad idea. But the way you've gone about it, the particular traits that you've picked on, the uh, mechanisms you use to score, those are stupid. Um, those are the wrong things. You're looking at the wrong thing. You're looking at them in the wrong way. Um, I will show you now what you should have looked at. And uh, then, of course, I mean, these arguments, of course, only really matter if that then leads you to a very different set of conclusions at the end. But that's another place you can attack it. Third way you can attack it is to say, yeah, the basic idea, yeah, that's good. You should measure things. Good idea. Um, the things that you're measuring, yeah, you know, they're probably not ideal. Probably we can measure something else. Uh, certainly we can measure it in different ways. Where you show your stupidity, they would say to me, is in what you actually do. When you come to be a historian and actually look at the evidence, this is where you mess it up and just go all over the place and go haywire. And so... Um, 
Of course, the good thing about these forms of criticism, this is what I was saying at the beginning, about the, the good thing about this approach is it forces you to be explicit. I may be as wrong as is imaginable, but even so, I will still feel pretty good about what I did. I mean, not great, I'll admit, not great, but pretty good. Because even if I'm completely wrong, um, I would hope it's moved the debate forward by... Uh, by, by forcing people to be explicit. And if they want to show that I'm wrong about things, they then have to show why I'm wrong. And in the process, hopefully, come up with a better theory. And, you know, it'll be hard for me to admit their theory is better, but maybe I'll be able to do that, and we'll be able to say at the end of the day, yeah, I was wrong, but I moved the debate forward. So, yeah, there's a, yeah, a whole array of things. And then, of course, a whole other set, you can say, well, okay, maybe you're right about all of that stuff, but you still interpret it wrongly. That having generated all these scores... Um, the, the, the story that you tell goes wrong. And there, I think, I would be attacked in the conventional sort of ways that a historian would attack another historian, by showing that your, your narrative that you've constructed just doesn't connect up well enough with the evidence. And so, say, they, they might say, like, my story I tell about the scientific revolution, how that is ultimately driven by the new meaning of geography, that's just really stupid. And I had lunch with a, a good friend on Monday who's a historian of science, and he was very nice about it. And he was kept saying, oh, yes, of course, you're right, brilliant, you're brilliant, you show geography is important, that's brilliant, but you are completely wrong about the scientific revolution, that that is not really driven by geography at all. It, that really is driven by the ancient Greek stuff, that if the ancient Greeks had not had the particular theories that they did have about ellipses and the mathematics of ellipses, then Newton and Leibniz would not have tried to fill in the gaps between the Greek thinkers. They would not have invented calculus. And so um, that, I would say, is the fourth level at which the theory mm -hmm. can be attacked. So you're probably keeping score. Your book has been out for a year or so now. And Neil Ferguson thinks it's wonderful, an historian. And Jared Diamond thinks it's wonderful, a collapsed guy. Uh, who else thinks it's wonderful and who else thinks you're dead wrong? Well, okay, <laughs> yeah. Um, my, my relatives think it's wonderful. <laughs> a few of my friends think it's wonderful. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been a very interesting experience. The best reviews the book has got have been in financial things. So I got a great review in The Economist, got a great review in The Financial Times. Um, to my surprise, I've been invited by a number of uh, financial and industry-based think tanks to come and think, talk about the ideas. Um, the place where I'm sort of guessing now, predicting the future again, but, uh, guessing my worst reviews I suspect are going to come in the professional historian journal. And the reason I'm guessing is oh, that... Oh, they're slow, so they haven't come out yet. Exactly, yeah. And the professional journals are, are you know, bone-achingly slow. Um, like, uh, in, the, in, in the popular press, if you review a book, if you don't publish the review within a month or two of the book coming out, there's no point publishing it, um, because it needs to coincide with the appearance of the new book, because that's why the book is news, briefly. But in academia, hey, we're in no hurry. We've all got tenure. What do we care? So um, we publish very, very slowly. And it generally takes one to two years for the, uh, the scholarly articles to come out. And I suspect that a lot of historians are not going to like the book for some of the reasons you talked about at the beginning, that um, it's trying to do things that historians generally really, really don't like. Uh, there's a period back in the 60s and 70s when historians started to get quite excited about quantifying things. Mm. We then had this huge backlash against it. So quantifying things, that's really bad. That is going to upset people, I think. Um, but then you know, launching off to say, yes, having done this stuff about the past, we can now learn some lessons, project them forward. 
That's really, really bad. And this is one of the amusing things about my profession. That most other academic professions... Why do you think it's bad? Has something bad happened in the past that they're wary of? Well, yeah, partly that, yeah. Partly, uh, you look back to guys like you mentioned, Karl Marx, as mm -hmm. an example, or in a slightly less sort of blood-soaked way, I'm saying you know, Toynbee writing in the early oh. to mid-20th century. Yep. All these grand theories yeah. of history, yeah. To write a grand theory of history, you've you got to do what historians, um, by training, I think up to a point rightly refuse to do. You, you couldn't write a book like this if every single statement that you make is based on direct work in the primary sources, in the archives. And this is what historians do. You, you learn um, medieval Chinese, or whatever it might be. You learn the paleography. You learn to read this handwriting. You go to the archives. You learn everything there is to know about a tiny subject. And you come back and you write a monograph about it. And that, of course, that is good. If people didn't do that, we couldn't have any serious history. We'd still be you know, where we were back in the 16th century, as far as history goes. The problem, I think, is that historians have said that you know, not only is that good, that is so good that you shouldn't do anything else. And, of course, you know, some of the people who have done other things, it has been slightly embarrassing what they've done. Yeah. But I think we, we really do have to do the other stuff. And um, one of the quotes... Why? Why do you have to do it? Well, I think this is kind of what history is for. And I ah. think almost everybody thinks this. Almost everybody believes this. And I think History partly, has a purpose, a yeah, meaning. Well, wow, yeah, that, that's big news. I think you're partly, of course, we like history. Those of us who like history do like it, at least in part, because it's, it's just interesting. And you switch on the History Channel, and you know, it's like 95% of the shows are about Adolf Hitler. But that's because <laughs> Hitler's interesting. I mean, you know, who among us has not sat slack-jawed for an hour watching one of these ridiculous shows about Hitler's interest in the occult, or whatever it might be? Um, it's, it's just interesting, just cool and neat. But then I also think that most of us do sort of think that um, history, that you can learn things from history. And you can learn stuff that tells you about why the world is the way that it is, and at least a little bit about why the future will turn out um, in one way rather than another. And you know, all, all of the historians who like to say, you can't learn anything from the past. You cannot predict the future from the past. You know, I, when, when George Bush invaded Iraq in 2003, those historians were not going around saying, boy, I wish the Bush administration knew less history, because then they would have foreseen the future better. <laughs> they didn't say that. And this, is, I think, is what makes history such a lovable discipline. But if you go to the economics department, say, and um, talk to these guys, they will tell you, you know, not only can we tell you all about economics, we can tell you about everything else too. Mm -hmm. And we wander over to your biology departments. They will say, yeah, biology is the key to everything. Mm -hmm. And physics, well, shocker, physics is also the key to everything. Historians, as far as I know, historians are the only academic profession whose point of pride is that their subject is the key to nothing. <laughs> and, <laughs> I find this peculiar. I find this strange. Well, that's a shift we're going to try to help move. Uh, last question. Take us back to archaeology. Archaeology for you and archaeology in the world. It's the Long Now Foundation we like looking at. Multiple millennia archaeology delves into that. Uh, give us a, a taste of the, what archaeology has meant to you. Well, yeah, I mean, archaeology is just really cool. Uh, and I mean, it really is one. Field archaeology is one of the most fun things you can do, if you like it. If you don't like it, it is the most tedious activity ever invented in the history of the world. If you 
don't sort of get it, so you don't get the buzz of it, it consists of moving dirt from one place to another extremely slowly. And this is, I mean, because that, that is what it is. And of course, you know, if you do get it, then of course, no, there's a whole, yes, you are moving dirt extremely slowly. Yes, you have to admit that's true. But there's a lot else going on as well. And it's just, and it's this really, really neat field. Um, that sort of at the, the academic level, you're doing two things at once. Um, one of them, it's kind of the most focused and detail-oriented of the human sciences. Because you can seriously, my dig, I was running in Sicily for seven seasons. Um, one, one area, we spent seven years excavating a single room across a period that spanned about 150 years in the past. And, I mean, my God, how, how nitpicky can you get seven years in one room? Which 150 years are we talking about? This was from about 650 B.C. to 500 B.C. So you have a very short period of time. But on the other hand, you're also comparing things across thousands of years and the entire planet. One of the differences between archaeology and being a text-based historian is that um, with text-based history, the, the formation processes of the evidence are very culturally specific. It's written in a particular language. You've got to learn that language. It's all this very local stuff about it. And there's so much of it to learn that it becomes very difficult to study China and then vault off to uh, you know, the Middle East and learn Arabic well enough to do the same thing. Whereas in archaeology, uh, you do get some very specific formation processes. The climate and the geology make a huge difference. But it's only kind of up to a point. And so it's much easier, say, for an archaeologist, it's very easy for an archaeologist to say, what I study is the agricultural revolution. And I study it wherever it happens and whenever it happens. And so I know everything there is to know about the origins of agriculture in the Middle East. But I also know most of what there is to know about the origins of agriculture in Pakistan and Mexico and China. And it's, you've got to be really, really good to do that. But there have been such people. Whereas historians will tend to say, I'm a historian of, of Ming Dynasty China, mm -hmm. rather than saying, I'm a historian of civil wars, say. Mm -hmm. And I am going to study all civil wars whenever they happen, and I'm going to pluck out the examples that are most useful for testing my theories. Historians very rarely do that. And there's, there's a, I think, you know, a good reason for that, which is the nature of the evidence. But also, the, it becomes this bad reason. It stops you from doing it. But that's one of the things that makes archaeology so cool, is these vast, enormous comparisons. And then, of course, the, the digging part of it, just the, the physical experience of moving this dirt, that on the one hand, it's just extremely bad-paid manual labor. It really does pay poorly. Uh, then on the other hand, it's a super high-tech activity. And you're, you're uncovering the stuff, like you're, you're um, laying bare, say, the abandonment deposit in a house. It's burned down around 500 BC. Nobody has seen this in two and a half thousand years. These are the last moments of that house. And sometimes you know, you'll, you'll catch um, the, the bodies of the actual people who were there when a building was destroyed, caught in the destruction. When I, when I was a graduate student, I dug for quite a few years on a... Um, on a project in Greece, on the Greek islands, um, directed by a Greek archaeologist whose wife is actually here tonight. And this was this amazing excavation. I met my own wife there, and uh, we excavated all these bodies of the people caught in the destruction around 1200 BC. And it, it's really hard not to like that stuff. That is just really great. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation.
Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining LongNow as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.